you know, the question I always ask is, has anyone ever been staring at you from behind and you knew? How come? How'd you know? How come? How'd you know? How come? How'd you know? But that does kind of bring me to one of the points that I did want to ask you about, um, which you've talked about this disassociative state and the loss of boundaries, loss of borders that we can experience. Are you familiar with the concept of the holographic mind? The holographic mind. The holographic mind. The holographic mind. The mind is a a cipher for the hologram that all of existence is a hologram and that our brain is interpreting that. The holographic mind. The holographic mind. The holographic And then to take that back to the disassociative state, one of the things that can happen during the psychedelic experience is that your returning to source gives you clarity because you've now taken your holographic plate and connected it back to source. And now you have a clarity and a distinction that you didn't have previously. This also goes back to Aristotle's statement that there is no learning of new things. There's only remembering that all knowledge is mediated, all knowledge is remembered. There is nothing new that you're bringing forth. And that by returning your plate, which is your brain, back to the master brain, you're just connecting to the source, that it's not giving you any new information. You already have all that information. You just don't have the clarity to be able to see it. The holographic mind, the holographic mind, the holographic I did have one of those conversations, like, you know, that, that Joseph Smith experience, like which one of these religions is right? And, uh, you know, the answer I got was every religion is just a cultural phenomenon as a hospital for what ails that culture, what ails that culture. This is Infants on Thrones. Baby steps. Who wants someone to preach to? The philosophies of men. I like magical toys. Who wants religion to Mingled with humor. I don't believe in them. There will be many willing to preach to you the philosophies of men mingled with humor. We are evolving. Baby steps. You can buy in this world of money. the good in everything look for the people who will set your soul free it always seems impossible until it's done look for the good in everyone welcome back to infants on thrones i'm glenn ostland and this is episode 755 Breathwork, Psychedelics, and the Holographic Mind with Jake Parent. And today I'm joined once again by non-woo-woo crystal clutcher Jake Parent, who you may remember from episode 729, Healing Breathwork with Jake. Today Jake and I talk about disassociative states, consciousness, psychedelics, my experience as a life coach, and even a little bit about Mormonism here and there. And we talk a little bit about the new mindfulness survey, which I would like you to go and fill out if you haven't already. Because why? Because I like surveys. I mean, I really, really like surveys. I've liked doing surveys for a long time. I I used to teach intro to folklore at Indiana University. And one semester I thought, you know, I I didn't have students that were necessarily religious. You know, I came out of BYU where everybody was Mormon, and now I'm at Indiana University where hardly anybody's Mormon, and there's just more of a a gambit of what people actually are. And I was curious, so I came up with this 
survey that had probably 20 questions. And it would ask, like, do you believe that there's a God? Do you believe that there are angels? Do you believe in heaven? Do you believe in hell? Do you believe in the devil? All of these things that I thought were kind of tied together. So if somebody said that they believed in God, then that would mean that they also believe in the devil. Or if they believe in an afterlife, then it would mean that they believe in ghosts or spirits. You know, things like this. What I found, and I, I did this survey in several classes, so I probably surveyed over a hundred of my students over a couple of years. I couldn't find any rhyme or reason to if somebody believes in God, then they're likely to believe in the devil or likely to believe in angels. It was just all across the board, the things that people would believe in. And so it kind of showed me that the way that I grouped things together in my own mind was kind of specific to me. I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's how other people see things. So that's one of the reasons why I do surveys on Infants on Thrones. I'm interested to see what listeners think about the types of things that I think about. And I find these really interesting, I don't know, what what appears to me like contradictions. But then to be able to talk with the listeners afterwards to ask, why did you answer this question this way, but this question this way? It's just so interesting to me. So let me give you an example, because I, I created this new mindfulness survey. Several of you have filled it out. And the most recent one, there's a question on here that asks, so, so I'm asking you to tell me, do you strongly agree, mostly agree, are you ambivalent, do you slightly disagree, or strongly disagree? So this five-point scale, right? And I ask things like, do you think that meditation is a healthy practice? Do you think that spirituality is a healthy way of looking at the world? Do you think that religion has had an overall positive influence on the world? And then here's this question. There is some kind of deep, energetic, highly evolved intelligence that forms everything in this universe. No, I don't call it God. I don't say anything about that. I just say there's some kind of deep, energetic, highly evolved intelligence that forms everything in this universe. And the person that filled out the survey most recently strongly disagreed. No, no, there is not some kind of deep, energetic, highly evolved intelligence that forms everything in this universe. No, I strongly disagree with that comment was what this listener said. Now there's about 20 questions in here and towards the end there's this question that says nature is intelligent. Now I would expect that because they said I strongly disagree that there's some kind of deep energetic highly evolved intelligence that forms everything in this universe and I would link like DNA or our genetics into that that they would say they don't believe that nature is intelligent because they've already told me that they don't but they said that they agree with this not strongly agree but mostly agree that nature is intelligent. And I don't understand that. I, I, <laughs> I find it fascinating. So I'd love to hear from this person or from any of you that would go, oh, I can see that. I can see how I wouldn't think that there's some kind of deep, energetic, highly evolved intelligence that forms everything in this universe. But when I use fewer words than I just say nature is intelligent, because <laughs> in my mind, those questions are almost identical. It's just... Like, what are you assuming when you hear deep, energetic, highly evolved intelligence? How is that different than nature? If I just said that nature is intelligent and forms everything that exists, would you strongly disagree with that one? Or 
mostly disagree. So I don't know. I find this kind of stuff fascinating. If you do too, come and fill out the survey. I'd look. I'd, I'd love to read through what you say and, and critique it as well. Hello, Jake. And how's it going? Oh, listen to that voice. Do that again. Hey, man, how's it going? Oh, my God. That is such a great voice, man. I love your voice. Yeah. <laughs> Good to see you again. It's been a while. It's it's all in the high dollar mic, man. Is that what it is? That's what I it know, is, man. I don't know. I think it goes deeper than that. I think it comes from your soul. Sexuality. Take it off. Oh. By the way. Right up your alley. By the way, it's funny because she didn't know I was... I'm putting on the Barry White music now. Baby, take it off. You have to edit this out. I'm not gonna. So, so don't, no, say no, it, no. don't say it unless you don't want to. No, seriously, Glenn. I want you the way you came into the world. Uh, okay. <laughs> What's that supposed to mean? I don't want to feel no clothes. She doesn't... So I wanted to show you this, Jake. Um... So, so you signed up to have this conversation with me today and you just said, I've got some questions for you. So I, I just kind of assume you're going to be interviewing me in mm -hmm. this one, but I wanted to be sure to have these crystals right here and I'm going to be clutching them the whole time. <laughs> I don't really know what they are, but uh, okay. I think this one's kyanite. Okay. But I don't know. I don't know what it does, but um, Yeah. So hey, buddy. Excellent, man. I'm doing excellent, man. How about yourself? Yeah. I'm doing good. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. You know, it's it's um I think the gift of recovering from COVID and getting my sense of smell and taste back. It's just this odd sensation that when I smell my own body odors that I'm excited about it. Now I'm like, all right, it's back. Instead of just being like, <laughs> I'm disgusting. No, there's this joy and this shiny brightness to life after going through the dark shadow of COVID for me. Uh, I don't know if that's, if other people have experienced like that or not, but um, yeah, it was a fairly mild compared to what uh, a lot of people have gone through, but I feel good coming out on the other side of it good good i you had um, it? i i i managed to catch covid before it became famous oh okay uh, so it took me about six months to realize uh, what had happened oh yeah and i i will say uh and i think me and my girlfriend a couple of friends we all had it in, in like february january before it got famous yeah um and the the what cued me in was during that time i was sick i had gone to cafe rio and had gotten tacos and i love cafe rio tacos mm -hmm. and went and got those and they were terrible and oh yeah like, you're like what's going on with my taste buds or did you did you recognize it as as you or did you think it was them i thought it was them i was yeah. like man cafe rio has really dropped the ball here tonight like <laughs> this these sweet pork tacos are just not good so um, you were projecting your illness on to uh yeah how, how apropos yeah but it was about six <laughs> months later i went huh you know cafe rio has been pretty good every other night so yeah. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna bet it was it was me not them mm. and realized that it was you know the loss of the loss of taste is what what did it for me yeah and then um and, and it's never really completely returned oh, um really yeah that uh I've, I've noticed when i eat like um 
uh, salt and vinegar potato chips. Mm-hmm. That's really when I notice it is that they're just not very, the, the, the taste of vinegar isn't, isn't very, uh, yeah, it's a little muted. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've yeah. experienced that with the little, salt and little, vinegar potato l- chips. Yeah. Yeah. A little off the top uh, again, blamed it on the chip makers. Like, Hey, you guys need to step up your vinegar game. Yeah. <laughs> and realized then, it was you. <laughs> and then realized, uh, I bet, I bet the vinegar is just fine. It might be me. Yeah. Uh, Interesting. Well, I've been listening to uh, a lot of your podcasts. I don't know that I've listened to all of them, but I've listened to listened to quite a few, and I've been enjoying it. I've been enjoying it immensely. So well, it's uh, fun to me. Like I'll get a text from you every once in a while, like, uh, "What was this? Who is this guy?" Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So thank you for that. Well, good, well, good. So uh, yeah, I, I had some questions for you. I had some thoughts. Um, just. And nothing specific. I don't always write down all my questions, but um, you know, you you feel seem like a hell fellow well met, and I do I do like talking to you, and I just as soon have this conversation off air. But maybe everybody else will, you know, maybe they'll that <laughs> maybe they'll enjoy our antics as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, you know, hope hopefully it's it's entertaining because I really don't have a goal for for you know, Jake. Uh, we can we can go we can go back to pretending that there is really anything such as off air or private conversations, but um, deep down Mm -hmm. we're all, we're all sharing everything with each other at all times. Do you, do you ever feel that? Do you ever get that kind of insight when you go deep into your breath work or into your medicine work, that, that deep connection that everybody has? Absolutely. Absolutely. That, that experience of oneness. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, the most common experience I have of that is, is called the oceanic experience. And, uh, that has its own little Wikipedia page. So that's a real thing. Mm-hmm. Um, or it's a real experience that multiple people have, have had where you feel like a drop of love in an ocean of love. Yeah. Uh, so that you retain your, your individuality, but then you're also part of the whole. Uh, are, are you familiar with Ber- Bernard Kastrup? I'm not. Okay. I just, I just listened to uh, an interview of him on, I think it's Z dog is the name of the doctor slash podcaster who does that. And uh, he, he was basically saying that we are all in a disassociative state, that the reason we see ourselves as individuals is because we're, we're all disassociative. And when we're under the influence of psychedelics, we tend that, that the, the boundaries between uh, that disassociative state tend to melt away and we start to feel more of that, that oneness that we are all connected to it. And I think that's exactly what psychedelics do. They impair the dissociative mechanism. So you become less dissociated and that's why there is ego death. I think it stands to reason that that's a very good model of actual death because in actual death that's precisely what's going to happen your 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 default mode network goes dark and uh, activity ceases and dissociation reduces so i i take very seriously ego dissolution as the best guess we can have um, to 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 what death uh, will feel like and from that perspective i think it's it's a great rehearsal because psychonauts know that if you don't resist ego dissolution, if you just let go, which is very easy, very to easy say to say, very, very hard, hard to do. do. Yeah, very hard to do. <laughs> very hard to do. 
but you can get to a point where that's natural. Um, I, I've, you know, I considered psychedelic experiences as part of my research. I think I wouldn't be serious if I would go talk about these things without undergoing those experiences myself. So I have done that with, based on a lot of study. I went to my doctor. I was checked out before I did it. I live in a country in which it's legal. Mm -hmm. So I had all these benefits. So I did it very thoroughly. And uh, you do get to a point where ego dissolution now is it's you, you ride it out with pleasure because if you've gone through the path enough times that you know that what is awaiting on this on the other side is pretty good if you only you let go um what is hard is to come back which i call re-entry when the dissociative mechanism reasserts itself and the entire concept of space and time come back because space and time is cognitive modalities that we've evolved to survive um, they are not out there. Now, even neuroscience, even physics itself is telling us they, space and time are not absolute. Not fundamental. Yeah. Um, when they reassert themselves and the idea of restriction comes back, that that's massively unpleasant. <laughs> and it is the reason I don't trip anymore, to be very honest with you, yeah, uh, Zubin. Yeah. I, 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 ego dissolution, I ride that wave. Now, no, doing a hang loose. <laughs> but re-entry, coming back. <laughs> Oh, man. I, and I feel so bad about life afterwards for 48 hours that I, I don't do it anymore. I, and I'd never heard that uh, described that way, but I thought that was really fascinating. So interesting that, that, idea. That That is really good because a lot of the things that we do consider psychedelics aren't necessarily psychedelics. They're disassociatives. Mm. That mm. that combo isn't a psychedelic. It's a, it's a disassociative five MEO DMT is more of a disassociative than it is, than it is yeah. a psychedelic that you don't actually have any visions. You don't see anything that it does dissolve you as the self. So combo, if I remember, I, I haven't experienced combo, but the first time I sat with a shaman, he talked about that as not something that he offered, but he, he recommended somebody who did combo ceremonies and they take a, if I remember right, they take a stick, uh -huh. they burn you a certain number of times and you tell them how many times and where you want to be burned on your body. And then they uh -huh. apply this toad venom. Uh -huh. And within about an hour, you just get deathly ill and you just are hating life for yeah. several hours until you come out of it. And you just feel like I did coming out of COVID. You just feel like <laughs> a million bucks. You, you're, you've taken your immune system through the ringer. Mm -hmm. And you come out feeling like a champion. Is that, is that, have you, have you experienced combo? I've, I've not experienced combo okay. that generally as soon as, as somebody says, Hey, this is a disassociative or this falls mm -hmm. into the disassociative class. I'm like, yeah, I'm, <clears throat> I'm good, man. I'm okay. good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That didn't necessarily like, a, I, I don't necessarily <laughs> want to burn myself in applied toad venom, but um, not that there's anything wrong with it. Not saying anything against people who do. Uh, it, Everybody that comes out of it says wonderful things about That's it. That's what I, um, yeah. And they tell me I'm, I'm crazy for not wanting to do it. I'm, yeah. I'm sure at some point I will uh, participate, mm. uh, but at this point it just hasn't, hasn't shown up. Yeah. Um, so I've been grateful for that, but that does kind of bring me to one of the points that I did want to ask you about, cool. um, which you've talked about this disassociative state and the, the, the loss of boundaries, loss of borders that we can experience. Are you familiar with the concept of the holographic mind? Well, if I hear holographic mind, what I understand by the word holographic is that the whole of everything is within it, within the mind. So that 
the, the image is usually like a, uh, a spider web that has dew drops and you could look in each dew drop and you see the reflection of the spider web in each one of them. It, so is that what you mean by the holographic mind or is it something different? Yes and no. Okay. Um, <clears throat> what I'm really discussing is that the mind as a hologram, okay. um, that the, the mind is a, um, a cipher for for the hologram that all of existence is a hologram and that our brain is interpreting that okay so you've you're not familiar with that i'm not i'm i'm not particularly like i i i'm familiar with donald hoffman's case against reality and that sounds mm -hmm. similar and even what mm -hmm. what bernard castrop talked about in that podcast was similar mm -hmm. to that but um it might not be exactly what you're talking about. So I'm curious. So there, there are scientists, um, physicists, uh, psychotherapists, analysts, uh, a lot of different fields that have come together and, and decided that the, you know, one of the, one of the images of the brain is that as a, as a computer mm. and that, you know, John S. Mill, even going back that far when they had finally had a concept of mind, you know, when they, narrow down into the brain what is it specifically about the brain that that gives us consciousness and right. uh, one of those theories is that it's it's not the brain that gives you consciousness yeah. <clears throat> that when a when we look at holograms uh, the way holograms are made is they they fire a laser at an object and it hits that and spreads out reflects off hits mirrors and reflects back and the way the hologram is made is like ripples in a pond when the ripples spread out from the water that it's not one ripple or one pebble in a pond that that creates those ripples that it's that it's two pebbles and by those ripples crossing across each other they have interference mm -hmm. so those ripples are happening with light waves as well that what our uh, eyes are picking up is is not light like a camera picks it up or, or a video camera but the way they a hologram picks up light mm. the way that light is scattered and the way the light waves cross each other and have that interference and then it sits on that plate one of the thought experiments for that your mind is a hologram and not um a video recorder or even a computer is if you think back to a memory in your life and you can view that you can view it as a picture you can use it as a video you can rewind it you can fast forward it but then one of the other things that most people can do is stop looking at it from your first person point of view and now rotate the image 90 degrees hmm. that's a hologram that's not a picture you can't do that with a picture i mean it happens in you know the wachowski's videos with with the matrix where that it has that 360 degree ability to rotate mm -hmm. but we can also do that within our minds so in order mm -hmm. to do that that has to be a hologram that's mm -hmm. not a, that's not a picture mm -hmm. um so that's one of the very simple thought experiments that your brain is holographic and not photographic so so would would a way of looking at that be what whatever region of the brain is responsible for uh like the visual cortex, right? For, for cre creating the image of the world that we're seeing, mm -hmm. um, that the, the way that it's being created in our mind is this holographic way that you could just through the power of your own imagination say, I want to rotate this 90 degrees and you're creating an image in your mind that then is rotating 90 degrees or has this kind of... I mean, I, I almost hesitate to call it three-dimensional, but 
would that make it three-dimensional then if it's holographic? That, that would make it three-dimensional. I mean, that's, yeah. that's the difference between a picture and a hologram Yeah, is that when you, you know, back in the old days, when you and I were kids and we'd go to the uh, mall to Spencer's and see those little mm. crystals that were holograms, isn't that they are 3d and that you can look at it from, I was angle. always looking at the fake boobs at Spencer's. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's only, there's, I mean, at a certain point, you, you're in your refractory period and you want yeah. to look at the other, the <laughs> okay. other trash case. Yeah. Yeah. My stamina wasn't that great as a teenager or as a <laughs> grown ass man. Yeah. So the, um, which brings up another point um, about, about the hologram. So I'm going to cover it from basics and then go a little bit more specific that in a hologram. Um, so our, our first time seeing a hologram would have been Princess Leah uh, you know, telling R2-D2 to go get Obi-Wan Kenobi for her. And yeah. that picture of Princess Leah coming up is a hologram. Yeah. The way the hologram is presented is there's a plate. Uh, it's kind of a film, but it's also a plate. And on that plate, when when light is, when a laser is shined through it, the imagery appears. And you would think, like in a photograph, when you tear a photograph in half, you have a half of it over here and a half of it over here. Hologram, what takes place, and you break that, hollow when you break that plate in half it doesn't split in two it becomes as the whole just not as so you have the same image you have the same visuals but you've you've you have a loss of clarity so so you were cutting out a little bit as you said that when, when you blake you when you break the plate in two it doesn't give you the right half and the left half of the image it gives you two versions of the same image, but the resolution has been reduced for each one. It's not as sharp and crisp. Correct. Okay. So that's, that's one of the things that's incredible about a hologram is you can keep subdividing it all you want. And everybody has a portion of, they have the entirety of the whole. It's just not to the same resolution mm -hmm. that you, you have a lack of clarity. So one of the experiments that a, uh, a scientist had done, which is where does learning reside in the brain? So that when you talked about, you know, the visual cortex portion of the vein brain interpreting what it sees. So he would teach these mice how to run a maze. Yeah. And then he would go in and remove part of their brain. Yeah. And, and he kept doing it, trying to remove the part of the brain that had learned how to run this maze. And he was getting to the point where he was removing 90% of their brain and they could still run the maze. And he couldn't come up with a location that there's a non-locality to, to learning. Yeah. And that if you have a holographic image of your brain, it's a non-local experience that there's not, there's not a single point where this is stored. It's stored at all points. Mm -hmm. And then to take that back to what you were saying about the disassociative state that one of the things that can happen during the psychedelic experience is that your returning to source gives you clarity because you've now taken your holographic plate and connected it back to source. And now you have a, a clarity and a distinction that you didn't have previously. Mm -hmm. So now that you have, uh, this also goes back to Aristotle's statement that there is no, there is no learning of new things. There's only remembering that, that all knowledge is mediated. All knowledge is remembered. There, there is nothing new that you're bringing forth and that by returning your plate, which is your brain 
back to the master brain, you're just connecting to the source that it's not giving you any new information. You already have all that information. You just don't have the clarity to be able to see it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that idea. I've, I've got one very minor quibble and that's using the word connecting. Okay. Cause I, 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 the way that I view source is mm-hmm. that it's this field of energy that just fills everything. And it's, it's what the fundamental building block of everything is, you know, so like there'd be this electron field, like a big ocean. And then the, the field has a little spike or a bundle together that that's your electron right there. And it's doing Mm -hmm. billions and trillions and just like an innumerable number of those just within my own body, just within your own body, but it's all part of this fundamental underlying field um, that we're never disconnected from because we're always connected. But, but part of what this field is doing is it's creating layers and layers and layers and layers and layers and layers of filters so that what I'm perceiving in a human body, you know, like if you think about this field as being consciousness itself, which, you know, maybe it is, I don't really know what that means, but that my consciousness is being filtered right now to primarily what I'm able to see through my eyes, hear through my ears, smell, taste, touch. Um, There's also my thoughts, there's my feelings and things like that. But I have this very filtered human experience of being something separate from this field of energy when I'm not really. And so a, a psychedelic experience might soften some of those filters or allow different regions of my brain to communicate with regions that they don't typically do. And that creates this disassociative state that then I feel like I'm reconnecting with something that I was separate from, but I was never really separate mm-hmm. from it. And I mean, so that's the way that I picture it. And, and there, was a, there was a book I read about a little over a year ago um, called The Proof of Heaven which is a terrible title. And even the author hates the title, <laughs> but it's, it's Eben Alexander, who was a neurosurgeon. Are you familiar with him? He had a near death no, experience. I'm not. He, he had a near death experience. He, he had, it was some kind of bacteria that had eaten the neocortex of his brain completely away. And uh, he had this really amazing near death experience while he, I think it was three days that he was on death's door and they kept giving him like percentages. You got like a 1% chance of living and et cetera. And when he came back and he reported all these experiences, he's like, how could I have done that? Because it's the neocortex of the brain that creates that. And mine had been, mine had been eaten away. And so it, it totally shifted his view of the world because he had this very materialistic view of his brain as being the thing that generates human consciousness. But after this experience, he said, I think that what the brain does is it actually is a filter for consciousness. And as the neocortex was eaten away, it's kind of like this disassociative state that we're talking about, that mm-hmm. the, the boundaries um, started melting away. Um, and so it made him think that that's the role that the brain plays in kind of delivering to each person this little slice of reality for you to play in. <laughs> Right. For you to perceive and for you to understand right now in this in this time and place. But it's uh, really right at the heart of the, the deep enigma of quantum mechanics that our modern science has wrestled with for more than a century now trying to understand. 
And basically what the results of those experiments have been screaming for our attention is that consciousness is primary and fundamental in the existence of this universe. And that is a very important thing to understand. And it also has to do with the whole question of the relationship of the brain and, and the mind, the mind-body discussion, uh, which is uh, basically a discussion that's been going on for more than 2,600 years. You'd think we'd be getting a little closer to an answer. Well, in fact, I think we are getting closer. But one thing my journey showed me very, very clearly is human brain and mind will never have a complete understanding of the workings of that creator and of this universe. And uh, one of the points I make in the book Proof of Heaven is that uh, we are probably better off than, say, a chimpanzee when it comes to trying to come up with a theory of everything, but not that much. That's an important thing to remember. But that doesn't get away from the point that by being conscious beings, we have access to far grander knowledge than I ever could have imagined before. That's one of the other theories is uh, with the holographic mind is that it, it, it explains the, the near-death experience and how, um, how universally similar they are. Hmm. And that, in that they shouldn't have that, that maybe not reconnection, but, but uh, that having that connection or the, you know, with the LDS would be most familiar with the, the removing of the veil mm-hmm. or either the thinning of the veil yeah. that, that it, it, it allows you to see how you are part of that source yeah. and to, to reintegrate that clarity that you haven't had yeah. um, that everything snaps into focus. It's like, well, I had a fairly fuzzy picture of reality but but now that i am uh in, in reconnected or or uh can see that connection that i have with source that 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 allows me to uh allows you to experience that yeah um, and, and it also um you know to go back to the woo-woo stuff it's also a clearer explanation it has explanatory power for a lot of esp phenomena Wait, wait, what, what's, what's woo-woo about what we've talked about? <laughs> well, there's nothing woo-woo about that, but okay. when we get to the, when we get to the crystal clutching, when we get to, <laughs> oh, I let go of my crystals. Powers, yeah, we'll pick them back up. <laughs> you know, people who, um, I, I always joke that I don't, I don't believe in woo-woo, but I've seen a bunch of it. Right. Right. Um, and I, I, I do actually believe in it. I just, don't like to lead with it or, or start the conversations there that uh, for people who are completely humanistic and mechanistic, um, you know, the question I always ask is, has ever anyone ever been staring at you from behind and you knew? Mm, yeah. How come? How'd you know? Yeah. Um, what what do they say? Um, they usually don't like that conversation and don't want to have it anymore. Mm because it does, it does challenge their paradigm. Like I'm not, I'm not asking you to guess what the number of a dice are going to be or to affect the outcome of something, but like, yeah, that's, that is beyond a physical perception. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think you'd like uh, Bernard Castrop because he really attacks materialism mm-hmm. um, and, and th- this idea of any kind of dualistic like that there, there's some kind of separation between energy and matter or that things are just matter and that energy doesn't count. He's like, it's, it's all part of one thing. And it's this 
outdated notion that it's not. And, and so how do you answer that question, Jake? How, how, how is it that you could become aware that someone is standing behind you and they're staring at you? Well, what, what's going on? Uh, well, that, that boils back down to the <clears throat> models of magic. And, you know, the model of magic that I'm most comfortable with is, is energy that I do believe in energy. I believe, do believe in transfer of energy and that there's something about them staring at you. That's, that's disrupting that energy field that you sense. Um, that said, a lot of times when people are taught to do espionage, when they're taught to, to track and follow people they're they're also told not to look directly at them, that, that if you're going to track someone or you're tasked with watching somebody that you usually look for a glass, you look for a mirror, you look for something else that you can observe them from without having to look at them directly. Mm. Um, so that you aren't focusing or channeling that energy directly on that person. And why and would a mirror, them. why would a mirror change that if it's like an energy field? Like, <laughs> I, I don't know, but it does that it's, it's much easier to watch from, you know, yeah. Um, that that you work you're working from that secondary angle that you think if it was just energy like a laser beam that it wouldn't matter but uh, yeah. it appears to yeah I I I think that's fascinating I I tend to I've started thinking of human beings you know because what I described earlier this this quantum energy field uh, lecture that I heard from David Tong which I've I've used on the podcast a few times that was so influential even in me writing a book titled bathing with god you know just this mm -hmm. idea that, that that energy we can't escape it and it's it's within us it's between us it's it's everywhere so when we're sensing something through our eyes we're sensing that energy in a certain form we call photons when we're sensing it with our ears it's these molecules that are disturbed and they're bouncing into each other in the air right. and it hits our eardrum and you know that like but it's it's all different forms of this energy and so if somebody's standing and staring at us and they're not they're not disrupting that energy field in any of the ways that we would typically become aware of it through our five senses we're still connected to them and that energy field and they're it, it just like some people have better sight and sound and than others, it's not hard for me then to go, okay, some people could be more sensitive to things that we might call extrasensory perception, just because it's outside of what we commonly think of as the five senses. Um, and uh, knowing that somebody is there intently staring at you, you, yeah, you can get that feeling of like, okay, what's, what's going on right now in this web of existence that I'm a part of, and they're a part of, and they're intently focusing on me right now. Mm -hmm. um, so, and, and they've done scientific studies to prove that it's true yeah. that, that, you know, I, I want to say it's like 70% of the time they get it right. Mm. Um, and, and, and people just innately turn around and start looking around, like who's looking at me? Like yeah. nobody has to go, Hey, somebody's looking at you. You just get a feeling. And then from that feeling, you, re you respond accordingly to it. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm being watched. I need to look around. Yeah. When you talk about the energy field, the uh, um, when I'm guiding breath work, one of the very last things I say before I release people to the music is that you are not your body. Mm -hmm. Most people nod their head and go, okay, I'm not my body. And then I say, you're not your mind. And that's when people usually go, hold up. <laughs> if I'm not my mind, what am I? And then, you know, I give them the third thing. You are the energy that animates you. Mm. 
And, and that, that's one of the other things when I talk to people that, that don't believe in woo woo. And I ask them about, you know, can you feel somebody looking at you from behind and they don't want to have that conversation anymore. It's like, okay, energy can be neither created nor destroyed. It only transfers forms. Yeah. What is the energy that animates you? And, and don't give me a silly answer like ATP because that people aren't born because ATP existed and they don't die because they ran out of ATP. Um, for those of you that don't know, ATP is the, the energy that drives the muscles in the body. It's yeah. the, the basic energetic source. I think the word energy can trip people up because I, I had a conversation maybe a year ago with my brother-in-law and I was talking to him about the energy that's inside of rocks. And he's like, there's no energy inside of rocks. And I'm like, rocks are made out of atoms, right? I mean, each atom mm -hmm. is a little bundle of energy. And he's like, yeah, but that doesn't count because we can't use it for anything. We can't use that energy to power anything. So it doesn't like, why are you talking about it being full of energy? And I'm like, okay, he's looking at energy differently mm -hmm. than I am. I don't well, know if there's a better word for it, but. Well, he's, he's looking at it from a purely utilitarian point of view. Yeah. You know, if you take that back to E equals MC squared, like. E equals M, M equals E, mass equals energy, energy equals mass. Does it have mass? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. Then it has energy. Yeah. Uh, it, it may be energy that's moving very slow. It may be energy that we can't utilize for anything, but by it having mass, it has energy. What is energy, Jake? Um, so, you know, I remember being a boy scout and, uh, you know, getting my electrician or electrical merit badge. And they're like, yeah, we don't, we don't have a good definition for, for electricity. It's yeah. just, you know, it is. It's like, yeah. all right, well, that's, it's pretty unsatisfying. Um, so the energy question is, is interesting is that it's a wave, you know, there's, it goes up, it goes down. It, it's um, that, that you can go all the way down to, to string theory for that quantum element. But if, if all energy is a wave, then what you have to come down to is that the that the universe in its entirety either equals zero or one. <laughs> that that it either all energy either cancels itself out and there is nothing in the universe, or or there's only one and there's not really that much. And what I mean by that is if all energy is a wave, every wave that goes up has has a equal wave on the other side that goes down and once you have that that zenith and that that apex and you put those together and you do the math it equals zero i remember hearing neil degrasse tyson talk about this several years ago in one of his books and he was he was talking about the amount of matter compared to the amount of antimatter and that it's not a zero sum game that there is a slight differential between it and they don't really know why there's a slight differential between it but if there wasn't a slight differential between it then we wouldn't have existence as we know it and it might like all be a vacuum or all be an explosion or something like that <laughs> i don't remember the details of what he talked about with that but that's what that, that's what you made me think of when you brought that up have you ever read uh, Scott Adams' book, uh, God's Debris? I haven't. Um, I, I, listen, I listened to Scott Adams on, I don't, remember, I don't remember if it was a Joe Rogan podcast or something. And there was something about him, I think his politics, that turned me off so much that people have recommended to me. He's, he's the author of Dilbert, right? He is. Yeah. Um, 
people have recommended him. I, I need to give him another chance. I've, I've judged him out of my awareness. <laughs> I, I think um, if I, I listen to his Joe Rogan podcast yeah. and there's a difference, uh, I don't, I don't believe he's ever come out and said what his politics are, but what he, what he is a master of is of persuasion. Mm-hmm. And and looking at an argument and saying this person's being persuasive, this person isn't. This is who's going to win, and this is why. Yeah. Um, not not saying I like that person. Not saying that that you know I agree with that person. But like, you're not being persuasive, and that's one of the things that he's really focused a lot of his life on is is neurolinguistic programming, mm. uh, and and the persuasiveness of that, and looking at the world through that paradigm, and just calling strikes and balls, mm. and then people get upset because he's like, "That's a strike," and they're like, "I don't want that to be a strike." And he's like, "Well." too bad <laughs> that argument's going to win and yours isn't mm. um so that's that's uh i think some people mis mischaracterize him or misjudge him that way that he doesn't seem to really have a dog in some of those fights he just calls them calls them the way they are yeah um so what's the title I, what's the title of his book the the book is called god's debris okay and and the basic uh, I think somebody explained this to me once. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Basic premise of the book that, that all of existence is, you know, God got tired being God and committed suicide mm-hmm. and that the entire universe is just the debris that's left over after his suicide. And that eventually it'll all pull back together into that oneness because he, he's God, he can't kill himself. So is he presenting that as a metaphor or does he believe that literally? Uh, he, he presents it as a story. Okay. Um, yeah. So it's, it's uh, an allegory or a metaphor. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, before my first ayahuasca experience, I was agnostic. And, um, you know, one of the things that I used to like to joke around was for all I know, there's a chicken that lays big bang eggs. Um, (laughs) and, and that could be the cause of everything as much as anything else that just because you, just because you believe in the divine, just because you believe in source doesn't mean it has to be a Christian God. I think every egg that a chicken lays is a big bang. Probably is for that chicken. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so what, what, what are you now having gone through your ayahuasca experience? You went from being agnostic to what? I'm definitely a theist. Mm. Um, certainly not a Christian. Um, I do, you know, I've met Christ. I've met Buddha. Mm-hmm. Um, I've talked to them, uh, but it's, you know, you get far enough away from the source and the message gets, gets perverted a little bit. And, you know, what we have today isn't, isn't anything close to what, what they were discussing. Yeah. Um, so it's hard to sign up for any of that. Yeah. And I did have one of those conversations, like, you know, that, that Joseph Smith experience, like which one of these religions is right. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, you know, the answer I got was every religion is just a cultural phenomenon for as a hospital for what ails that culture Mm. that's a cultural response to to their tendencies and and the and trying to overcome those tendencies and get them back going the right direction yeah so and sometimes it makes the culture a little sicker it's like like those those hospitals that uh have like high infection rates (laughs) something like that right yeah well it's you know the the religion I think every religion has started with somebody having a full blown and, and legitimate mystical experience. Yeah. 
And then, you know, I've, I've taken people to ceremony as soon as they get done and feel how incredible it is. Like their first response is, Hey, we need to start making some rules about this. Yeah. And I was like, well, that's, it's kind of the opposite of what you got there. Like somebody didn't make a rule to get you to feel that way. Yeah. Um, that, that people, you know, they're like, Hey, we gotta, we gotta mandate this. And it's like, oh, that's, that's a terrible, that's a terrible route. Yeah. And then, and then it calcif- all those rules calcify themselves into dogma and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, us versus theming and you know, all yeah. these wonderful things until it blows up and something new comes along and excites people. And then you got the rules and the dogma and just the cycle. Yeah, the it cycle. does. It keeps repeating itself. Yeah. Yeah. And in the meantime, people keep having their, their one-off mystical experiences. I think it was Jordan Peterson who said, you know, uh, religion's real roles to keep people from having mystical experiences. <laughs> uh. <laughs> can't, can't have people out there experiencing the divine on their own. Yeah. Yeah, they wouldn't listen to us anymore. Right. Which one of the, one of the things it seems like a lot of the a lot of the conversations that you have have you have you studied Buddhism? Um, sort of. I mean, I haven't done like a formal study of it. I I, I had a world religions class back in college in the mid early nineties. Um. I, I think probably the closest that I've studied Buddhism is just like listening to Michael Singer um, and the kind of Buddhist principles that come up through what he's talking about and the untethered soul and uh, different works that he's done. Um, I, I, I know Noah Rochetta and the secular Buddhism podcast. I, I interviewed him once. Um, and so I'm, I'm, fairly familiar and and then alan watts talks about buddhism a lot alan watts is probably my biggest source of yeah. uh it's, it's a little bit more zen but it's yeah. the same yeah. it's the same pond yeah. have you uh no rachetta uh did you know him before you did the podcast with him i know his brother better than, than I, know, him. I know nick better his twin than brother him. yeah okay yeah. um his uh you know he does a podcast called secular buddhism mm-hmm. and the first five episodes of his of his podcast are him explaining the basic tenets of, of secular Buddhism mm-hmm. and his premise of, uh, you know, don't, don't study Buddhism to become a Buddhist study Buddhism to become a better, what you are, whatever you already are. Yeah. And it, it seems a lot of times that some of the conversations that you seem to be having with yourself and with your guests is you're kind of skirting around the issues that like, I'm not saying Buddhism has the answer, but it certainly has all of the vocabulary and has already laid out the, the arguments that you're looking for and looking through. Mm, tell me uh, what you're here yeah uh well that's now that you put me on the spot i'm completely forgetting everything off the top of my head because i didn't take <laughs> notes <laughs> but I, I i felt the same way about um you know reading the republic when i was a kid that it it seemed to take a really long time to explain things that i thought were rather basic yeah. but i didn't realize that they were rather basic because the republic had been written all that time ago and it just become part of the water or part of the ethos that, that we live in. And I think a lot of times some of the concepts that you're grappling with, uh, if, you know, um, impermanence of, of Buddhism, uh, that, that would like, yeah, it's, it's all, it's all impermanent and it's all interconnected. Yeah. Um, that, um, once you have those, those places, and, and I'm not a Buddhist and I'm not recommend anybody else come to Buddhist. It just, it does give you a good framework to have a lot of these conversations from. Yeah. I, I think the strongest imp- 
influence of Buddhism on me has been recognizing desire, but like, like the, the role between suffering and desire and attachment and like what it really means to, to release that, 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 that's been the most interesting part to me. And that, and again, that's coming through like a Michael Singer or even uh, David Hawkins, the book, letting Mm -hmm. go, if you're familiar Mm -hmm. with that, Um, those kinds of principles of uh, letting go of the expectation of how things should be or, or ought to be because that expectation uh, and another Byron Katie loving what is okay. was, was really huge in that as well. Like letting go of the attachment to form, um, which I think is very Buddhist, a big mm-hmm. smile on your face right there. Well, there's a, a big smile on my face because I, you know, I, I get wrapped up in my own dramas Yeah, and um, you know, I'll, I'll get upset that, that something isn't turning out the way that I thought it should be. Yeah. And then I have to sit down and meditate for a minute and go, Hey bub, what, yeah. what do you really, what do you know? Yeah. Oh, not much you. And uh, you know, finding that, that piece that comes over me when I, when I do finally let go and that I, <clears throat> I, I'm certainly not to any place in my life where I'm ready to give up desire because I'm having too much fun with the game. Hmm. that that uh i do look at as a game or a dance or a song and that i want to put everything into it and that i'm not looking for that place of how could you entity all the time how could you give up desire yeah because even even desiring to give up desire is a desire i mean it's Mm -hmm. (laughs) like well it's you know part of that is attraction and and repulsion but then when you go back to your electrons that you know their electrons do their job they do their dance because of the attraction that they feel mm-hmm. um that there's an attraction that's going on with those electrons that holds them in the uh in the spiral that they're in and that if there weren't any attraction everything would just you know turn into a plasma and do nothing which would be pretty boring yeah so i also wanted to talk about um you know you you joined a life coaching program with uh, Grand Canyon University? Well, Grand Canyon University is uh, uh, clinical mental health counseling. The, okay. the, the, the life coaching is a cert- certification that I did with uh, Alan Cohen a couple of years ago. Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. So the, uh, I guess those two things are distinct. So working your way through the, so you're, you finished the life coaching program. Yeah. Yeah. Certified. Yeah. I've, I've been a certified life coach for about a year and a half, a little more than that. Um, Okay. And then getting a master's of science in clinical mental health counseling. I've still got probably a year and a half ahead of me. And then all, all of the hours that I need to put in to uh, (laughs) do that. If, if I do go down that route or not, but, but I'm I'm at least in it to get the the master's degree. Okay. So how is the, um, what is it do you think you've received so far from the mental health coaching masters? What is that giving you? Um, the thing, my favorite class I've done, I've done four classes, um, so far. And my favorite one was the theories where we, we looked at Carl Jung, um, Sigmund Freud, s- several others that were inspired by them. And I'm trying to, rem- I can't remember the name of the guy right now, but it doesn't really matter. He, he, he was the father of something called reality theory or reality therapy, which he talked about external control psychology. Uh, basically, 
if you're trying to find peace of mind because by changing other people and getting them to line up with what you want, you're just banging your head against the wall the whole time. And so he took like Stephen R. Covey's uh, seven habits of highly effective people. And he kind of played with them a little bit. And he said, here are the seven deadly habits of external control psychology. And I don't remember all seven of them off the top of my head right now, but it's like complaining, mm -hmm. blaming, um, bribing, uh, threatening, you know, just like tr you're trying to get other people to change. And then he contrasted them against the seven caring habits, which are listening and understanding and being compassionate and negotiating difference. And, uh, you know, so, so just being able to look at, at things that way, th th there were things that I'd already kind of felt intuitively. Um, and when I saw it spelled out the way that he spelled it out, that was probably the biggest game changer for me and any, anything that I've studied so far uh, in that course. I just absolutely loved it. It's made me much more aware of, how many times am I trying to manipulate somebody else to do what I want them to do instead of just me making the adjustment myself? And mm -hmm. uh, when I make the adjustment myself, I get much greater peace of mind than when I'm trying to change somebody else and then keep them, you know, like where I think they need to be in order for me to be happy. Right. Yeah. Good. And, and, you're you're coaching others as well now yeah okay yeah. very good got it got a few clients and we do some group coaching and um yeah it's nice and it's and it's mainly ex-mormons that listen to the podcast and they come in and they they either have issues with um with a spouse or with their family members or they just kind of feel like lost and they don't know <laughs> what to do with their life now that all of the pieces have fallen down. Um, or um, I, I had a really great couple of months with a guy who just had a lot of anxiety and it mm -hmm. wasn't really even church related. Um, and so we, we had quite a bit of success. So I, I start off um, by taking a, a survey because I love doing surveys you do. how they how they feel about certain things and then at the end now how do you feel about these things so we can kind of measure subjectively how they've changed over the course of of coaching and this guy like the way that he felt about himself the way that he felt about people around him uh the times that like he, it's not that he was totally cured of anxiety but he just mm -hmm. was so much more comfortable um in his own skin so yeah, yeah, I've been I've been doing that for about a year and a half, and I enjoy it. Excellent. I find the um, for for me personally, when I when I left the church, that I, I I cared so little that I just I didn't care about anybody's opinion. Um, yeah. You know, um, friends, family. It's like, hey, kick kick rocks, fools. I'm I'm not playing anymore. Yeah. Um, so it, it I'm not as compassionate as I could or should be for a lot of people who do leave the church and have, have that conflict with their family or have conflict with friends about it. You know, my, my dad called me an apostate and, and like it had zero effect. Yeah. Like, you know, he might as well told me I had a beard. It was like, yeah. So, and moving on. Yeah. <laughs> like if, if you thought that was going to be persuasive to uh, get me back to the church, we need to talk about that. Cause that's some, that's he some was trying terrible. to use his external control 
theory on you to shame you back in, right? Yeah, it's like, yeah, that's, um, I don't know if we've met before, but that's not going to work real well, Dad. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> might want to might let go of that one. Um, so just, just from a high level, how do you, like, I'm not asking you to coach me on that, but like, how would you approach that with people that they have those relationship conflicts or those relationship challenges uh, that may be giving them anxiety um, because their point of view has changed. And I hear a lot of people come on the podcast. They're basically, you had a term for it where they, they still go to church. They still show up and they, Oh, know, the just, chemo, the physically yeah, and mentally out. Yeah, yeah that's it. Um, not, that's not my term, but yeah, that's the, that's the term that they used. Yeah. So um, what are you, you're asking me how I how, would. How, yeah. How do you, how do you help those people? navigate those waters from a 30,000 foot view. I mean, you don't have to tell me the, like the, the, the first part is just to understand what, what role, like, like to understand what is it that you're feeling mm-hmm. and, and describe it to me and tell me, and, and what are the triggers? And, and usually people are looking outside of themselves for those triggers. They don't realize, you know, kind of going back to where we started this conversation, talking about the mind, this is where we all live. We all live in this holographic mind. We all live in our stories of what we expect the world to be. And when what we expect the world to be comes into conflict with what the world actually is, we suffer some kind of stress, whatever, in whatever way we do it. Maybe for some people, it's sadness. Maybe for some people, it's anger. Uh, maybe for some people, it's detachment and they withdraw. Um, despondency. There's all kinds of things. Maybe, you know, there's, so, so I get to know the person um, that way. How how do you expect the world to show up? How is it showing up when you see it showing up differently than how it's showing up? How does that make you feel? Um, What, what, what can you do about it? (laughs) Right. What can you do about it? And usually it's okay. Let's change the mindset. Let's change the story. Let's change the, there, there are certain reasons why you expect the world to show up in a certain way. And a lot of times those are unexamined. You don't really know why you just do. And so let's spend some time figuring out what that is. And then do you have any power to adjust that and change it? So if you expect something differently that matches more how the world actually is, you'll have a greater sense of peace. That's kind of what I'm operating from my, my mm-hmm. base assumption and so spending time with, uh, with a client is really help learning. What, what is it that you're expecting the world to be? Why are you uh, feeling the way that you're feeling? What can you do about it? And I, I don't tend to give advice or say, this is what you should do because I don't know. I, what I want is for them to figure out for themselves what feels right. What, what is going to work right? Well, let's try this. How did that go? No, you want to try something else? Okay, let's try this. And and really what I hope I'm doing is uh, helping people create their own self-regulating awareness of their mind. Right. That's really good. It's one of the things that I've really appreciated about your your podcast is you... um, you don't give people advice. You don't tell them, Hey, this is what you should do. Mm. Um, and that, well, that you do <laughs> it, it, you know, I've, I've noticed it. I don't know if other people do, but you, you. do you yeah. allow them to, to have that space. Um, I come a little bit more from the Dr. Phil 
uh, you know, school of thought where it's like, well, how's that working out for you? All right. Well, don't do that. Don't do that anymore. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's also, um, you know, usually, usually when somebody violates my boundaries, there's not been a clear, like if somebody clearly violates my boundaries, it's very easy for me to, to deal with that. Mm-hmm. And that it becomes more challenging when they, when they baby step their way across where it's like, oh, I'm getting close. I'm getting close. I'm getting close. And the next thing I know that, you know, they're way over the line and I'm like, all right, uh, let's back this up. How'd you get here? Yeah. Um, and, and the hostility that I, that I feel about that. So the, the first thing you said there about talking them through and, and how they felt that was, <clears throat> cause usually that's what I have to do with myself is like, how, how did we end up in this situation? Let's, let's yeah. play the, let's play the tape back here. I, I, I think the, the, the other thing that it, it hasn't just been the master's program um, in clinical mental health counseling, but that has been a part of it. But, but other things like, the Wendy Kennedy Pleiadian messages, but it Mm -hmm. it pops up in all kinds of places. Um, What value comes into your life when you teach yourself to drop judgment and really just accept things as they are. That is so hard. That's so hard to do. But, but we started off talking about uh, the, the mind being this disassociative filter. Mm -hmm. Judgment is something that reinforces the idea of separateness. And so like, it's almost the, one of the mechanisms that we use to reinforce this disassociation and this, this feeling that not only am I separate from you, but that you are bad. You're like the way that you're doing this is a threat to me and my very existence at one way or another. And so it, it, instead of moving more towards unity, it's, it's moving away from that and it's moving more towards self-isolation. And a lot of times what we're doing when we're judging is we're really, we've got these deep shadow fears. You know, this is where like the Jungian, the, the, the Freudian shadow work stuff comes in. We, we've got this unconscious mind that is filled with all of these stories that are unexamined. We're not really aware of, and we project it onto others. And so becoming aware of that and seeing, especially when it comes to the form of judgment, I'm really expressing something inside of myself that I can, I can change the dial. I can adjust that. I can, and if I can become a less judgmental person, let's see if that means that you become uh, have more, uh, peace, uh, of peace of mind, uh, have more of an open heart. And I, that's become a huge theme for me. So I, I, I appreciate what you said about my approach to the podcast and not shooting over people, which is the way that my partner, Cammy likes to say, it. Right. <laughs> I'm not shooting on people. Uh, you should do this. You should do that. Um, but really being curious, about why is it that you do that? And the, the fundamental, like I truly believe that every single person has a very valid reason for why they think the way they think, why they feel the way they feel. And you, if, if you're curious enough, you can understand why. Right. Now it might be based on misinformation and it might, you know, it might be wrong in a sense, but it's mm-hmm. the reason that they're having that experience, whatever it is, is because, uh, they are, <laughs> right. and, and, and there are very valid reasons why they are. And so for me to go in and be like, well, you shouldn't, or that's wrong is just 
fundamentally incorrect. I, I'm just, I, I yeah. <laughs> one of one of the things that we say during so no one work. should do that. No one should judge. <laughs> this is my advice to everyone, Jake. Don't judge. <laughs> so, uh, you know, as as you know that whenever you, it, it's you you can't just let go of a bad habit. That in order to really let go of a bad habit, you have to replace it with a good habit. You can't just stop doing something. You have to start doing something else. Hmm. And, and when you say, Hey, don't, don't judge. It's like, all right, well, what's my brain going to do instead? And the, the habit that I've picked up there is during breath work, I started saying there's no right way or wrong way to do breath work. There's, mm -hmm. there's only more skillful and less skillful. And as it turns out, that radiates throughout everywhere else in my life that, mm -hmm. that people aren't right or wrong. They're more skillful or less skillful. And when someone creates a complete catastrophe of an incident you, you know one of the ways that i deal with that now is, is to say well that that wasn't very skillful now was it mm -hmm. um and i find i find humor in that instead of saying hey you're a complete and total screw up it's like well that yeah. that wasn't very skillful we need to work on the skill set there and and uh try and go about doing that a little bit better yeah and that that people in your relationships may not be handling you skillfully, which is one of the things I've noticed. It's like, well, you're you certainly are not handling our relationship skillfully, which means I need to. I've got to tell you, though, there's still something about the way that you're framing that more skillful mm -hmm. and less skillful that it seems like there's an attachment to a certain outcome that if you're able to achieve this outcome, then you've done it skillfully. If you're not able to achieve this outcome, then you've done it unskillfully. When, the, when there might be something that they experienced that wasn't what they wanted to experience or expected to experience, but is still quite valuable experience if you really take the time to look at it for what it is, instead of just saying, hey, you didn't really get to where you wanted to go. So it's, you know, and, and then there's still that layer of judgment in there. So I'm thinking is what... Yeah, well, is is there such a thing as mastery? Mastery of what? Of anything. Of any skill set, of anything that you're trying to accomplish. That I, I used to be a weightlifter where we did the Olympic lifts, clean and jerk and snatch. And it takes a high degree of skill to do that. And that at a certain point, the weight is going to become so overwhelming that no matter what your skill set is, it the technique is going to break down. So mm -hmm. wherever your weaknesses are under a large enough load that that flaw in your technique will be exposed. Mm -hmm. And, and on the one hand, I, I subscribe to the theory that there, there are no flaws. There are no flawed human beings that when we look at, um, when we look at bonsai trees, we don't go, well, if, if that tree was more symmetrical and more evenly placed, it would be beautiful. No, the, the beauty in the bonsai tree is in the flaws, is in the things that are, are unique. Um, and that there are parts of the human experience that because of the flaws, because of the things that are odd, it makes them unique. It makes them special. Mm -hmm. But there's also a level of mastery. And that's one of the things that I live for in my life. And everybody else does as well, whether it's golf, whether it's tennis, whether it's lifting uh, weight, whether it's talking to someone in conversation, you know when you've done it perfectly. No one, no one has to tell you when you hit a golf ball perfectly that you did it perfect. You just know. You feel it. You don't have to look at the ball. You don't have to turn around and take a bow to anybody else. As soon as you make that connection, you go, that was perfect. Mm -hmm. I need to hang on to that. Whatever that was, I want that perfection again. And that's, that's what I chase in my life mm -hmm. is those moments of mastery.
So then do you avoid all of the times or, or um, beat yourself up for all of the times that you hit the golf ball and it isn't perfect? No, no, man. It's that's part of the fun. That's part it, of the game. It's, it's part of the reason why it feels so good when you do get the perfect thing. So, so to your Correct. question to me, is there mastery? I, I think, I, I think probably where I look at that and I might hesitate to answer it quickly is that in, in, Again, it depends on what you're wanting to master. And usually that's a, a slice of the whole where it, mm -hmm. it, it would put your focus on this is good, this is bad, this is mastery, this is flawed or something like that, where when, when all things come together with their flaws, like you can't have mastery without unmastery kind of thing. So mm -hmm. they all, they, everything all, all of existence fits together in one great <laughs> God's the only master, Jake. <laughs> right. But, but when, whenever you create art, I, like I am clutching these crystals piece, so hard right now. I am like holding them. <laughs> but if, yeah. if you're creating an art piece, I'm, I'm assuming that you've done art because you've, you know, you do music, you do everything else that painting, yeah. drawing, whatever it is that there are, there are strokes, there are moments in that, that piece of art where you're like, that is definitely not what I was trying to accomplish there. Like this is, this is off balance. This is off yeah. center. This is not where it should be. But when somebody else looks at that picture, they go, this is beautiful. Oh yeah. This is incredible. Well, I, I mean, and you're like, of the hey, podcast this little, are like that. this little point right over here, yeah. I screwed up and they're like, yeah, I don't, I can't even tell. I yeah. Yeah. Tell. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think of uh, the podcast a lot of times as artistic expression and there's times mm -hmm. where uh, I think, Oh my gosh, that is brilliant. I love what I just did right there. I don't know how, I don't know where that came from, but that like that fits together perfectly. And, and I, I, especially mm -hmm. when I'm doing like the, the intros and I pull out like little quotes from things to try and tell a story in, in the intro with that, you know, like Beatles remix in the back. Like, I like, you are really love good putting at that. that together. I love it. I get mm -hmm. so much like personal satisfaction from doing it, but other people and might it shows. go, that's stupid. Like, that's not good. Why? Or, or they well, might have I, taken I, different. I certainly haven't heard stuff. anybody that said that. Oh, well, yeah. I know they're out there. Trust me there. I know they're out there, <laughs> but, but Ooh. so you're talking about kind of the subjective those, those, nature. Those people mastery. are less skillful. Yeah. They're just bad. They're just dumb. Right. <laughs> No, I don't no, mean that. Just less skillful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, Jake. All right, got your clutch, got your crystals back in your yeah, hand. Yeah, 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 yeah. And unfortunately, I've I've got to jump off. I got to finish up some work Same. today. But um, yeah, thanks for scheduling this time and having this conversation and uh, peppering me with these questions. Anytime you want to do it, I'd love to. Love it. Love playing in these. these yeah. Well, this we, we never got to never got to free agency or uh yeah well the differences between those so maybe we'll do that next time sounds awesome all right cool all right thanks guys. put down the weapons that you use against yourself you don't need them anymore hey there thanks for listening all the way to the end now i really hope that you enjoyed today's episode i have more to say about this topic and I'm going to do that with a follow-up behind-the-scenes sharing time episode on Patreon. So, if you're in a position where you can throw me a few dollars each month to support the work that I put into creating this podcast, please come and support me on Patreon, where you'll also get access to additional content. 
Did you know that I also create sharing time episodes that are available only to Patreon subscribers? I've been doing that for a few years, so there's a lot of content there that you can have access to. So please come and support this podcast if you can. I greatly appreciate it. Hi, this is Hillary, Matthew, Ryan, Carol, Dashley, and I like to play bingo online while listening to Infants on Thrones. You can comment on this episode on the website, infantsonthrones.com. And if you really like what you hear, give the quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. I did. I did. I did. Anyone for the closing prayer? My worst crime is an inside job. Dark thoughts taking over like an inside mob. I tune into the scene between the eyes. And take a breath. Thank you for listening to Infants on Front. I sit still and watch the thoughts flow past me. Never mind the future, never mind what the past be. I like to jump and let the universe catch me. Three, four, watch the beauty blow past me. I keep my pockets like destination in sight. Keep my actions elevated to compassionate heights. I'm walking past the fight, laying down on such a night. Choosing love when I pick up this mic. The Disassociative Mind A simmering bowl of word soup loquaciously ladled from the infantile mind of me. Another Rorschach inkblot for you to observe and consider. An internal dialogue, a serpent swallowing its own tail. The disassociative mind. What does that mean? Disassociation means that you experience some kind of distance from some kind of society. You disassociate, split off, separate, individuate. You see yourself as separate from them, whatever or whoever they are, whatever or whoever you are. The idea that there are man-made versus natural objects in this world, in that sense, is a disassociative statement, because it separates humankind from nature as if humans didn't grow out of nature the same way that everything else we call nature grew out of nature. As if the very underlying fabric of reality, the stuff, whatever it is, that makes every single atom of everything that exists everywhere, as if it is not itself a single connected massive sea of energy that truly exists deep within every living cell of our bodies, as well as in every atom and every molecule of air that we breathe, and water that we drink, and everything else that we disassociatively think of as outside of us, as separate from us. See, this is what happens to me and to my mind when I podcast about the fictional nature of the Mormon church for so many years, like a serpent perpetually devouring its own tail, I've 
picked apart scripture and conference talks and LDS.org essays, and I've seen the fingerprints of humanity covering all of these things. Ideas about God, ideas about eternity, ideas about our own existence and the meaning of life. These are all human constructs, stories, fictions, all existing within human minds, having been formed and created by human minds, shared, learned human behavior, traditions passed down from generation to generation, updated to keep up with modern ways of thinking a little bit here, cosmetically polished to scrub off some of the antiquated edges a little bit there, dipped in honey from time to time from the beehive mentality of this tradition is working for us so if it ain't broke why fix it for enough people that the monolith continues exerting its power over the minds that brought this fiction into existence in the first place that is the way that i see the culture of the mormon church that i was born into and worked my way out of as I was earning a master's degree and this close to getting a PhD in folklore and mythology. It helped me to see that the Mormon church is a product of human creation, like every other form of tradition, culture, folklore, and mythology. Just like every man-made culture and structure in society is created and maintained through the process of tradition that I learned about by deconstructing the Mormon church. Even though there are many different individual flavors and tastes that are culturally unique and distinct from the many other forms of man-made sets of ideas, stories, fictions, and structures. This is the process that I used to reason away any allegiance or obeisance that I was taught to accept without question from a very young age, this belief that somehow, for some reason, I owed an eternal, insurmountable debt to a Heavenly Father, to a creator of my spirit, the creator of all existence, God the Father, who I was told was a glorified, perfected, resurrected man with a white beard and at least one wife who is our own eternal destiny we as his offspring as deities in embryo we can become like him I was taught but only if we are good only if we constantly work to pay off that eternal insurmountable debt that even the infinite atonement of Jesus Christ can't seem to satiate as long as we viewed ourselves as low and unworthy and worked really hard to make ourselves worthy, which would be declared upon us by our leaders who by virtue of their very leadership were viewed as worthy and could therefore declare us as worth more than we otherwise felt that we were. As long as we did what they said and didn't do what they said not to do. And these beliefs and stories formed patterns in our minds 
and expectations of how the world was and how the world is. And as a result of those expectations, that's exactly what I believed. It's exactly what I expected. And it was how I lived my life for a very long time. Ignoring the fact that the creation of myself and life on this earth and everywhere in the universe, wherever it comes from, however it arises, does so of its own desire to exist. Not something where I owe a debt to anything, but I am the fruit of that existence. I am the fruit of life. But I couldn't see that until I introduced myself to new stories, to new fictions, to other ways of viewing the world and other ways of forming expectations about what to find in the world. And as always, this serpent has swallowed its own tail, going down a huge tangent hole. The point of this contemplation is that the gift of the Mormon faith crisis, for me at least, has been to see the ways that stories impact beliefs and beliefs impact expectations of reality. And that expectations of reality determine what we perceive and more importantly, what we do not perceive of reality. The gift of the Mormon faith crisis to me is that it showed me what the Hindu idea of Maya, the world of illusion, is all about. The fictions that we believe that create a certain flavor of reality that maybe it's unique to every single person by virtue of the many things that we believe and do not believe, that we like and that we don't like, that we think about and that we ignore. These neural pathways in our brains, these mental filters in our minds, partitions upon partitions of mental filters, bioelectronic connections of living neurons, all acting in disassociative ways that create through our minds the sensation that we are separate individuals having separate individual experiences, which is how we all experience life ever since we were born into this world, growing out of it as one of billions of fruits of the process of evolution on this planet. All of these different life forms popping out of Mother Earth like a weird kind of Pez dispenser after millions of years of evolution, which shaped our nervous systems of each living thing to focus on those things in our immediate environment that are most beneficial and most harmful to the successful experience of our own life. And now I am swallowing my tail once again, going down a wormhole. The point I'm trying to make is that the disassociative mind is what the human brain creates. It is a system of fictions, a system of filters that are responsible for allowing the energy at every core of every atom in existence to experience itself as something different, as something exactly like you are experiencing in this life right now. I like thinking about things like this, and I owe that to the Mormon Church. Not because it couldn't have happened any other way, but simply because this is how it happened, and this is how it is. And the Mormon Church took nothing away from me. It only added to everything that was already there, 
it showed me the value of fictions. It showed me how real they are in shaping our reality. And it made me ask the question. I see things that I don't like. I see things that I don't want to be. What do I want to be? How do I want to be? Should I just distance myself from any type of fiction and be afraid of what could happen if I allow fictions in my mind? Or should I be very intentional about the types of fictions that I engage in? Be very aware of the direction that they're taking me and ask myself, if the things that I liked about the Mormon church were the mind-expanding explorations of existence, the idea of unconditional love and acceptance, and if the things that really upset me about the Mormon church were the places where I saw unconditional love being used to support things that certainly were not unconditional love, what does that tell me about my own mind and heart and the direction that I want to go of being somebody who really embodies unconditional love? This is the gift of the Mormon faith crisis to me. This is how my disassociative mind is attempting through my imagination to lower the partitions of my mind, the filters that make me feel separate. This is why I use my imagination to imagine what it would be like to be one significantly insignificant piece in a much larger, grander, magnificent whole.